1: I'm of at least two minds about special programming for Black History Month, which this is. For one thing, African Americans deserve their fair place in all of our country's history, past and present, not merely a separate but equal mention in February. That's one mind. And, on the other hand, or on my other mind... We've got a lot of catching up to do for all the years that the role of African Americans was denied or treated as if it weren't simply there at all. I'm constantly on the lookout for people who inspire me, folks who are putting their hands and hearts and minds to the good work. So it's good fortune that I was able to arrange to visit with Salika Duxworth Lawton today. Years ago, a friend of mine spoke passionately of an incredibly moving Martin Luther King presentation that Selika had orchestrated, and from that day on, she was on my radar. I also saw articles about the powerful and growing Juneteenth celebrations that she has been part of in the CV post. I knew the time had come to talk to her. Selika Duxworth Lawton is an associate professor of history at the University of Wisconsin Eau Claire. She's on the executive board of Wisconsin's ACLU. Selika was co author of a book, The Pipeline, and she contributed a chapter to a newly released book, Black Veterans, Politics, and 20th Century America. A chapter called Have Gun Will Travel. She's also a musician and will have a bonus excerpt on the northernspiritradio.org website with a simple performance of one of her songs. Right now, Salika Duxworth Lawton and I are meeting on the seventh floor of Hibbert Hall at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire. Salika, thank you so much for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Thank you for asking me to be here. And we're doing this in the course of Black History Month. Has this been a busy month for you in which ways?
0: There's been a lot of presentations, talking to a lot of people, helping with a lot of programs. We have had the university MLK here. I've been working with Converge Radio on two different programs. One is in African-American music program where they're playing African-American experience through music segments at 6.10 in the morning and 7 at night. So we've got 35 songs on there, and it's quite an interesting mix. And with Converge and the CARP, I'm doing the African-American experience through metal next Thursday. So we've been setting that up. I'll be working with AAUW to talk about lessons for women from the civil rights movement. And we're prepping to go into Women's History Month. And we're bringing in Isaac Hampton from U.S. Army South to talk about blacks in the military. So there's a lot of things going on here on campus.
1: And that's in addition to teaching classes. Are there special classes that you're doing that include Black History Month?
0: Well, every semester I teach the History 210, which is the African-American survey. So, of course, that's going to include African-American History Month. In the fall, I will teach the Civil Rights class, which is 344. And they will be planning the Martin Luther King event, which is, I mean, we want it to be more educational and unifying than celebratory. We wanted to make sure that people are doing and they feel like they're getting something from it, and especially being involved with the community. So the ideas with Juneteenth and with Martin Luther King is that both events should help build us towards a beloved community where people of all races are working together to create a better Eau Claire
1: Actually, I kind of hope that Eau Claire is a seed for the world. Northern Spirit radio programs go out all across the United States, some 38 different stations. Even though Eau Claire is this one little city in Wisconsin, our experiences and our learnings and our transitions are conveyable to other people. One of the key things that I think we want to talk about today, Salika, is mass incarceration And the way that we could be redirecting all of that money that's going to mass incarceration to more useful purposes. Wisconsin was one of the early areas to experiment with alternative courts, drug courts and mental health courts and so on. And Eau Claire was one of the initial sites in Wisconsin to do that. And I know it's a nationwide movement, but could you talk a little bit about your experience, your knowledge, and the impetus for this redirection of money from keeping people in prison to more useful outlets. Well, I'm on the executive board
0: of the state of Wisconsin's ACLU. National ACLU has a program called Smart Justice. Smart Justice argues for us to stop making felonies of things that are not crimes and that are petty— as a source of revenue, and to redirect that money towards education and mental health. So what I'm talking about is this creeping felonization of things that 25 or 30 years ago wouldn't have been crimes. When you're looking at that school-to-prison pipeline, two kids having a fist fight over whether they were asking a girl or a boy to the dance wouldn't have gotten you into the juvenile system in the 1980s today, that's felonious assault. And I had to go up as a youth mentor to Toma to the boot camp to try to get that expunged off a 16 year old's record. So we're charging kids for things that for stupid behavior, let's be honest, that didn't used to be a crime for a boy to all right, I have a daughter. If a boy pats her on the butt or smacks her on the butt, I want her to turn around and hit him. I do not want her to go to jail for hitting him. And I do not want him to go to jail for smacking her on the butt. Because that stupid 11-year-old behavior, that should not be, it should not rise to the level of felony. We have criminalized dumb behavior to such an extent that Wisconsin locks people up more than any other state in the nation. And on top of that, then you have crimeless revocations. Crimeless revocations are for people who are on parole. They are not crimes. They are administrative violations. And the administrative rules, some of them are reasonable, but a lot of them are ridiculous. Getting a credit card and having forgotten to tell your parole officer Taking a new job without your parole officer's permission. Moving in with your girlfriend or boyfriend without your parole officer's permission. Wanting to buy a car without your parole officer's permission. These are things that have sent people back to jail. These are crimeless revocations. So, crimeless revocations criminalize everyday acts And while on one hand, it makes sense to try to keep somebody who has a felony conviction away from other people who have felony convictions, you want to make exceptions so that they can see their relatives. You want to be reasonable. And we have become unreasonable. We have become so unreasonable that we are sending people back to jail for things that are not crimes. We have a labor shortage in this state. We have a shortage of skilled labor in this state. Just think of what could happen if we could get all of those people who originally went to jail for petty stuff, like marijuana, and we could make them skilled workers. So this is why we need to rethink this idea of revenue policing. Right now, we are fining people for things like having their grass grow too long. And if they don't pay the fines, they can be put in jail. And then they sit in jail and they lose their jobs. And now you have a cycle of problems. The police don't like doing this. They don't like revenue policing. They think it's a waste of their time. They would rather be dealing with meth. They would rather be dealing with heroin. They would rather be protecting people from stalkers. And they have said that multiple times. But these are revenue streams. These are revenue streams for different and various places. And it's an abuse of our police. And it's an abuse of our law. So if we could lower the amount of crimeless revocations, if we could lower the amount of fines, if we could less regulate our daily lives, we could take the money that we save and we could move it into mental health and we can move it into education. So these are very, very important. And I'd say that the ACLU Smart Justice Campaign is probably one of the biggest civil rights programs that we are seeing in this country today.
1: As you said, Salika, you're on the executive board of Wisconsin's ACLU. And I think maybe a lot of people are ill-informed about what ACLU is. How did you get involved with them? What service are they providing to our country? And I think it's a big one, by the way.
0: The American Civil Liberties Union fights for all of our rights. They don't care whether you're liberal or conservative, Republican or Democrat. They fight for all of our rights. They fight for the First Amendment they fight for the Second Amendment, they fight for the Ninth Amendment, they fight for the Tenth Amendment. They will defend everyone, because they believe that our rights, as articulated by our Constitution and the Bill of Rights, are the centerpiece of what it means to be an American. I'm an ACLU member, and I was recruited onto the Chippewa Valley ACLU's Executive Board. And from there, I was elected the Chippewa Valley representative to the state ACLU. That has sort of thrown me into this statewide organizing role. I mean, through both the Chippewa Valley ACLU, some of the best people I have ever met and ever known. And they're helping me to grow as a person and to try to be a better person. When I was trained to be on the ACLU board in Milwaukee, the first thing they said was, if you can't defend someone who is saying or believes things that you don't believe in, you can't be on this board because we have to protect everybody. And that includes obnoxious personalities and obnoxious speech. You know, I teach civil rights and I understand that... The same law that protects me protects a Klan member. And the abuse of that law can go both ways. So I understand that we have protected speech and we have unprotected speech. We don't have a legal category called hate speech. I understand that sometimes I'm going to have to put up with Confederate flags, even though I think they're quite obnoxious and clans members are going to have to put up with a brown person in a room even though they think that's obnoxious this idea is that we protect everyone's rights and that includes the most marginal among us and the most marginal among us would be immigrants who are undocumented and people who have been convicted of felonies So ACLU, Southern Poverty Law Center, and RACES right now are at the forefront of the fight to protect our rights from those who would give away our rights through fear. The cliche is if you trade your rights for safety, you deserve neither.
1: It's not a cliche. It's simply the truth. Yes, I understand that. That must be hard, though. I mean, there is, we all have our self-interests, right? One of the things that I think people explore too little is what is our definition of we? Very interestingly, there was a study a number of years ago about liberals versus conservatives, and one of the definitions, that, uh, the main definition they used for liberal is the bigger your circle of we is, the more liberal you are. If you're very limited, you know, it's only white people, white people in Wisconsin, only white people in Wisconsin who are Green Bay Packer fans, whatever, that's we. And they have to be Lutherans too. You know, if that's your limited definition of we, that makes you very conservative by their scale. Do you consider yourself to be liberal politically, theologically, behaviorally, however else you would define it? I suspect that a lot of people connected with ACLU have liberal leanings, but I also expect that one of their essential beliefs is that we as everybody, and so that includes the conservatives, have to be in the tent too.
0: We as everybody. I think most people are neither liberal nor conservative. We're a mix. So, on one hand, people would say I'm liberal because I believe in equality. People would say I'm liberal because I believe that equality means treating everyone with respect, not just the people I like with respect. So I don't believe that when an oppressed people get power, they should be rolling it downhill. That to me is not equality. That's abuse of power. So what I want is to cut abuse of power. But on the other hand, I also believe in certain gun rights. I don't want to see guns banned. I would like to see us go back to a time when having a gun meant that you were trained and you were responsible and you had good judgment and we knew you weren't mentally ill. Some people would think that's conservative. Some people would think my stance on freedom of speech, which is that unless it's a threat or it's unprotected speech, we have to allow it. That's liberal. I believe, and the ACLU stands for, the right for women to control their bodies. So, you know, it depends on the situation, and I think while most people in the ACLU might be seen as liberal or conservative, it's ironic that our country has moved so far to the right that Ronald Reagan would be seen as a liberal today. In many ways, the words don't have meaning in certain quarters, I think what most people who are in the ACLU believe is that we are all citizens of this world and we all deserve equal rights and equal protection from the government. And we deserve the protection of that government to protect us from people who would abuse our rights. So this is, it's a complex combination, but at the heart of it, has to be that protection of rights. But the we for ACLU is everybody. If that makes us liberal, that makes us liberal. But I'd say some conservatives would say thank God for the ACLU as well. I know here in Eau Claire that ACLU is bipartisan, and I know that from our board, and I know that from the people who we meet out there. One of the nice things about Eau Claire is that we do want to share values. Of course, you know, there's going to be knuckleheads, every place has knuckleheads. But the nice thing about Eau Claire is knuckleheads don't get to run the joint. That shared values, that reaching across, that understanding that Eau Claire should lead the state, I think is one of the most important things and makes us a center where ACLU makes a difference. And this ACLU board that I serve with, I am very proud to say that they're some of the best people I've ever met.
1: There's all kinds of elements of what you've been saying, Salika, that I want to pursue some more. Again, folks, we are speaking with Salika Duxworth-Lawton. She is a professor at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire. Her Ph.D. was in African-American military history, and that followed on a master's in European military history. And so there's some stuff about the military I want to talk to you about as well. But she's on the executive board of Wisconsin's ACLU, amongst other things. And there, there's a wealth of activities. If if you go out to the web and follow some of the links that we have on northernspiritradio.org, I'll connect you to articles about her in the Chippewa Valley Post. I will connect you to her work with ACLU and books she's written. And one piece I wanted to follow up right away was about guns. Uh, Because you're a person of color, I think there's a presumption that you'll have a standard thought about guns. There's a a chapter you've written in a book just recently called Black Veterans, Politics and Civil Rights in 20th Century America. Your chapter was entitled Have Gun, Will Travel. This book just literally came out a couple weeks ago, so I haven't even read it. Tell me what that chapter is about.
0: That chapter is about the Deacons for Defense and Justice in Louisiana. And they're a black veterans militia that was led by a woman, Gail Jenkins, (laughs) and by a man, A.Z. Young, who—A.Z. Young goes on to be one of the great black leaders of Louisiana towards integration. And they argued for armed self-defense because they were in the rural areas. Louisiana was the closest we had to a race war in 1965. The deacons protected the white and black lawyers from the Congress on Racial Equality as they came into Bugalusa, Jonesboro, Mississippi, and Alabama into those rural areas to enforce the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act. The deacons are the untold story of the civil rights movement, Because those who want to talk about nonviolence ignore the fact that you have to have power to fight power. And in the rural areas, nonviolence didn't work because they just disappear people. Patrick Jones and Selma of the North said, if you scratch a nonviolent movement, you will find armed self-defense. And these veterans are the ones who pushed back on the Klan. They protected these civil rights activists, and they opened up the spaces for not actually operating. They especially forced law enforcement to make a choice. Law enforcement did not enforce the law to protect black and white civil rights activists. If law enforcement wanted the deacons to put down their guns, law enforcement had to enforce the law equally. Louisiana is the only state that integrated without U.S. Army intervention, and that's because of the deacons.
1: And that's just one of the things you've written, Salika. Mm Are there some other your books and writings that are particularly applicable to this time in history, 2019? And I find it interesting that with your masters and your PhD on military history, which generally, at least in the United States, has not been black history, that the portion of that has often been compartmentalized. It's under a white person and is very limited to purposes of the government. I find it interesting that military history is your forte, and what you just said about guns is connected with the thought that having strength is a a way to protect rights, or it could be. It depends whose service those guns are in the hands of.
0: Well, in um, civil rights history, there's an idea called the politics of protection, and it is that veterans and black women have been leaders at the local level for civil rights. And those veterans have a special place within this politics of protection because their training with guns is what gives them both the leadership skills and the organic skills to be able to protect the community. Guns are a form of power. And for people who have no access to governmental power and economic power, guns are a third loci of power. During Reconstruction, it's clear from the Reconstruction Act that the Radical Republican Congress intended for freed black people to have guns to be able to enforce their own rights. One of the first things that happens in those southern states is what's called the Pig Laws, and we see Pig Laws passed in 1865 and 1866, and they're meant to strip guns off of those newly freed slaves so that they would be powerless against what emerges as vigilantes who are called the Ku Klux Klan. So this fight over guns in the black community has a very long history especially in the rural black community, and rural blacks tend to be invisible to the media and sometimes to history. It's really been in only the last five years that we've seen a lot of publications on the civil rights movement in rural areas. Because urban areas are easier to see, urban areas are easier for the media to be in. We have video, we have all of that. Digging it out of the rural areas is a lot harder. The politics of protection also argues that veterans, both male and female, are particular targets of the Klan, are particular targets of the white supremacists, and that black women especially are those targets and therefore deserve special attention and special protection within the civil rights community. When you look at the riots of 1919, what we call Red Summer 1919, it was black soldiers in federal uniform who were particular targets. Because for white supremacists, a black soldier in uniform is their worst nightmare. And these black soldiers go on to be leaders in the community. I mean, you look at David Dinkins was a Korean War veteran Harold Washington was a World War II veteran. So there's a special place in the civil rights movement for veterans as leaders, and it comes off of the training to use power. And that idea that leadership is how we handle power and how we don't abuse power and how we maintain discipline and a disciplined presence is a really strong part of the politics of protection, whether we're talking about nonviolence or whether we're talking about armed self-defense. You know, And to talk about power in this way, I think is very important because at the heart, the government governs by the consent of the governed. Power resides with the people, but we want power to be exercised in a Disciplined way. And right now we're in a moment where we have undisciplined people exercising power. I have a book that's from the 90s that I wrote with Susan Hosek and Pete T. Meyer, and it's called The Pipeline. And it talks about integration and how do you integrate the U.S. military without giving up effectiveness. And one of the things we were talking about is how do you build bonds across race? And one of the things that we found, and we said in that book, that becomes one of the bases for what we call implicit bias today, is that people have an easier time seeing across race if they are the same class. If they are not the same class, their racial stereotypes tend to be reinforced. Now, that book argues for a two-prong approach. One prong is assimilation, and one prong is acculturation, Today, we've moved away from the assimilation model, and we are moving closer to the acculturation model, which is that we should appreciate differences and see differences as strengths. Assimilation is that we should try to push people to a same standard and make that standard very transparent and make sure that everybody knows what that standard is. We really need both. And I think that what we found in the pipeline really is extant for how we have to rebuild unity today. We're in this hyper time, and that partisanship has been included with race. Par- par- I'm from Louisiana. We don't pronounce anything properly. Our first language is Creole, and it messes us up. So hyper-partisan. And we need to build unity across the races, across the genders, across class. And we need to be very blunt about exposing those who right now divide and rule.
1: And we're going to hear more of that from Salika Duxworth Lawton in just a moment. But first, I want to remind you, you are listening to Spirit in Action. NorthernSpiritRadio.org is our website. We have programs broadcast on community radio across the country, about 38 stations at this point. So you can come via our, our site, org. find links to those stations. You can find our connections to Salika for instance, and her connection with the ACLU and their Smart Justice Program articles she's written, her books, all of that is on Nordenspiritradio.org not only for Selika Duxworth Lawton but for all of the guests we've had since 2005 when this program began. Also on the site there's a place to post comments. We love it when you post comments. Two-way communication is so much better than just listening to my voice. So please come to our site and post a comment. There's also a donate button. This is full-time work supported by listeners only. It's not by government and it's not by corporations. It's because you the listener want to see it continue even more so than just supporting Norton Spirit Radio I love community radio stations in Eau Claire we happen to have WHYS which is where this program began from and Converge Radio is also here which Celica spoke of earlier but all across this country, there is an alternative to the mainstream news and music cycle that you can get via community radio. So I'd say start by supporting them. They make possible so much good in this world. Again, we're with Selika Duxworth Lawton. You'll find her referred to by different names, depending on which venue she's in. And at the University of Eau Claire, where she teaches in the history department, Selika Duxworth Lawton is her name. You know, I want to go back and grab little pieces and chunks. There's so much of interest that you've spoken about, Salika. One of them was hate speech. And again, as a person of color, you know that there's certain hate speech that impacts you very directly. Because I'm melanin-challenged, I do not face a lot of challenges that a person of color will face in this country. I'm also, because I'm middle class and because my speech is middle class— I'm probably safer than a person in lower class, uh, which is actually where I come from, where most of my brothers and sisters, their speech patterns will not be my college-educated diction. So I, I understand about the ways in which we look at each other differently by class, by race. And hate speech is something that was coined really only the last couple decades Could you talk about what hate speech is, how it fits with your viewpoint as part of the ACLU, when it's valid, when it's not valid, or what it's reaching for of value?
0: Well, I guess the problem with the term hate speech is that we have protected speech and we have unprotected speech. Unprotected speech includes defamation, threats, libel, criminal extortion, And usually we use what's called the Brandenburg test in order to decide whether threatening speech is unprotected. The Brandenburg test is a three-part test that says, can this person actually carry out this threat? Is there a time, place, and manner? Is there an imminent threat from this speech that you will have riot and violence? So, you know, inciting riot, inciting violence is not protected, but unfortunately, insulting people, believing racial stereotypes, articulating those stereotypes, is protected. Acting on those stereotypes, physical discrimination, is not protected. So for some people, this is a distinction without a difference. But the thing is, the Supreme Court has said you can fly a confederate flag on your property. If you put that confederate flag on my property, it becomes a threat. But if it's on your property, it is protected speech. Hate speech is meant to terrorize a population. And when we look at Jim Crow, Jim Crow was meant to terrorize the African-American community into accepting mass incarceration, into accepting slavery by another name, into accepting discriminatory behavior, into accepting violence. So hate speech is a form of intimidation. Our country has a hard time legally categorizing intimidating speech. Now, a lot of intimidating speech falls over into threatening speech. But the Supreme Court, through several decisions, has narrowed the idea of intimidating speech to ways that we out here in the ordinary community would not agree with, if that makes sense. This becomes a problem when you engage in self-defense. This becomes a problem if you're dealing with domestic violence. This becomes a problem if you're on the internet and you're dealing with people who are calling you N-word and threatening to come to your house. The definitions now of threats have become so narrow that they're almost useless in terms of law enforcement. And they're now enforced in such an arbitrary manner If you insult the police in New Jersey, you get a visit. If you threaten to kill a black person in Wisconsin, you get nothing. And that lack of enforcement for threatening speech has made certain parts of the Internet ungovernable. I mean, Twitter has a major problem with that. So the problem for me as a multicultural person is while I would rather not deal with hate speech, what I'm afraid of is that if we try to create regulations to govern hate speech— those regulations will be used against me. A couple of years ago, I said on the university senate floor that if you looked at the police reports of racial incidents at this university and didn't think we had a racial problem, I didn't know what was wrong with you. A white faculty member promptly filed a complaint against me saying that that sentence, he felt, was anti-white. And was threatening, and he felt threatened, and he thought it was hate speech. So you see how hate speech can be used against a marginalized person. Now everybody who encountered it laughed at it because clearly I wasn't threatening. I was making a statement of fact. But the problem with trying to regulate certain types of speech from a governmental entity is that you're going to have people who will play semantic games. To try to use that to suppress multicultural speech they don't like. Because white supremacists see advocating equality as hate speech. White supremacists see advocating interracial marriage as legal, as hate speech. Incels see advocating for women's equality as hate speech. So you see the bind that we have. We don't want to live in a society where supremacists feel comfortable saying what they're saying. But the best way to handle them is to push back against them ourselves. There are limits to what the law can do. This is where society as a whole has to rise up and say to the Richard Spencers of the world, no, we're not going to talk about black genocide and we're not going to normalize that. No, we're not going to normalize neo-Nazis and say that they're just ordinary speech. No, we're not going to say that it's okay to kill women and it's okay to beat women and it's okay to force women into doing something. We as a society think you are sick. And the more we as a society refuse to normalize hate speech through our social means and our social shaming, the better off we are.
1: Folks, we're speaking with Salika Duxworth-Lawton here at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire, where she teaches in the history department. We've got all kinds of links to her books, writings on our site, and in particular, you might want to check out a chapter she wrote in a new book called Black Veterans, Politics, and Civil Rights in 20th Century America. From what you just said, Salika, I was wondering if I could solicit your opinion about Jordan Peterson. He has been such a lightning post for so many people. I have a sense that a lot of people have not listened very carefully to what he said and therefore have overgeneralized negative opinions about him. I do have issues with some of the things that he says. What's your take on what he has said and what he advocates? And how much does the ACLU, I mean, he's in Canada, so it doesn't apply, right? But how much does the ACLU think that he has any kind of speech that should be limited?
0: Jordan Peterson is not advocating violence, although his advocacy of enforced monogamy is quite frightening because that's been taken by people who want to limit women's rights to argue that women should be auctioned off or forced to marry and that women should be forced into certain behaviors. What's interesting going on around Jordan Peterson is we are at a moment where we're beginning to just look at masculinity. And we're at a moment where masculine and feminine roles are in flux. We have in this country an idea of traditional masculinity that is disciplined, that is intelligent, that is effective, that is protective, that's aggressive in defense of self and others. And it comes from an idea of manliness and cleanliness that comes from the 1860s and 70s and was articulated in response to a move from most men being their own boss as farmers to half of the country becoming workers for someone else in this industrial revolution. How do you define manhood as the terms of manhood changed? So on one hand, you have this argument for a disciplined manhood who are leaders and are protectors. And they gain their manhood from their internal, so they don't need to oppress women in order to feel like men. But on the other hand, you have this argument, this concept that Gail Biederman calls brutalism or hypermasculinity, where the oppression of women, how many women people can have sex with, forcing women into traditional roles, brutalism through fighting, certain types of sports dominance, a sort of brutal undisciplined dominance, really is at the heart of this hypermasculinity. This is the other mode of masculinity we see arise then, and we're seeing it still today. And we're seeing it in this fight over Jordan Peterson, because Peterson, in some ways, is harking to the hypermasculinity. And he's trying to blend some of the elements of cleanliness with hypermasculinity. He argues men should be disciplined. He argues men should be better. But he also argues men should dominate women. So he's trying to combine these two elements. And the problem is that the dominating women part, which you see in a lot of communities, I talked about the black Israelites at a program on Monday. So you see the black version of this where they argue men should be leaders, men should be economic providers, men should have their own businesses, men should dominate women. Nation of Islam does that as well and also argues men should be able to beat women and make sure they stay in their subordinate position. So it's not just white. It's not just black. It's not just any race. This argument that subordinating women is this essential part of masculinity is a problem. The ACLU is not going to advocate for the suppression of any of his speech. But if anybody tries to force women to have to get married at 18, there's going to be a brouhaha I think that, you know, you you can't just suppress everything underground because then it festers. You need to bring this out from under the rock. But Jordan Peterson is dangerous because he gives, there's a certain victimization narrative that sort of threads under him. And for young men who feel already that they're victimized because they don't have a girlfriend, he gives cover to that. And they don't have to look at themselves. And they don't have to think about expanding their masculinity. They don't have to think about what masculinity looks like. They don't have to think about the fact that in this country, for men to have male relationships where they talk about emotional things and emotional problems to each other is problematic. Brothers can do that. And the brotherhood that comes from the military can do that. and Brotherhood of sports can do that. But just two men meeting and having drinks to talk about the fact that they're having problems with their marriage. That's made to look unmasculine. And Jordan Peterson plays into the group that wants this very narrow view of masculinity. And today we are in a place where there are people who are trying to expand what masculinity means so that men no longer have to die sooner because they have to bottle up their emotions. No longer have to die sooner because the only acceptable way to express emotions is anger. No longer will be seen weak if they cry in public. He opens up a space for a conversation, but the way he's sending the conversation is not the way I want to see it go.
1: But because you're a strong member of the ACLU, you would not suppress his speech. And that's really important to have these open conversations. One of the things you mentioned, Salika, that I find interesting is because you originate from Louisiana— That's part of your culture. And I don't know how many people in the United States fully understand the cultural differences that were rooted. I mean, slavery was a different thing in Louisiana than it was outside of that. So you go over to Alabama, it's a very different creature. People have heard of the Louisiana Purchase and that it was because France was deemed to own that area of land and they had more culture there. Lafayette comes in through there and so on. What other elements that are fundamental to you and to your worldview come with the fact that you've got this taint of Louisiana?
0: <laughs> I'm not sure about taint. <laughs> you know, I am, I'm a rural black from Louisiana, and that is a very defined group. I'm a Creole so we have a very distinctive culture, and it goes beyond gumbo and jambalaya. It goes towards a view of self-defense. It goes towards a view of Black excellence, a view of leadership that, you know, those who are the most educated should lead. It links to Du Bois's Talented Tenth, that it is our job to lead. It links to interesting views of Black right relationships. But also an understanding. There's a saying I say up here not all skin folk is kin folk. And understanding that you do reach across race. Louisiana is infamous for a large number of light skinned blacks. Louisiana is infamous for, as Richard Pryor said it, the black people look white, the white people look black, and everybody's crazy. You know, I mean, it's not by chance that most of the major leaders of the Black Power Movement come out of Louisiana, that the armed self-defense movement, the proto-Black Power Movement, really originates in Louisiana. When you look at southeastern Louisiana, we have both a geography that pushes self-defense and self-help and orientation. And we have a culture. It's this hybrid French-Spanish culture that mixes with an Irish culture that argues that we should have power unto ourselves. We need to take power unto ourselves or we will be oppressed. It is an anti-aristocracy that we have that's very different from Virginia where all the whites want to say they're British and still want to hark back to that. I'm from Louisiana and we, we celebrate and we revel, but we have, they're black and white in the same family in a way that really the rest of the nation is really catching up to. And that means that Louisiana blacks have less fear and we speak more clearly and we believe in speaking truth to power, even if it gets us in trouble.
1: Because I lived in Africa for two years, and I got to be the minority, a privileged minority still because I was white and I was looked up to and I was a teacher at a school and I'm educated and all those kinds of things, I do have a different experience than most people in the United States. After I came back and I was living in Milwaukee, for a while I taught at UW-Milwaukee in the physics department. At one point I had a student come to me. He was a big, burly guy. And he was very upset. He was in a class of 120 people. And he came to me after I gave a test that was challenging for that class. And he said, you wrote that test to get me. Well, that wasn't true because I didn't even know who he was. We became friends in the ensuing conversation. I got to know him, gave him extra help because I wanted everyone to succeed, of course. And he understood from my experience that I wasn't the person he thought I was. But he told me a very interesting thing. He was from the South, and I don't know, I think it was from Alabama. Living up in Wisconsin, in Milwaukee, he said, I've never experienced prejudice, discrimination, racism as much as I have in Wisconsin. What I grew up with in Alabama, at least, you know, if someone didn't like you, it was up front and it was clear and here's how it worked. It was a very different experience for him being in Milwaukee which is one of the most segregated cities of the nation, unfortunately, in my view. You're living in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, and the percentage of population, which is of color, has grown in the last 30 years I've lived in this city, but it's still a small enough percentage. What was your experience of race and identity moving here?
0: You know, African Americans are 1.1% of the population here and before the 2010 census, we actually had the highest income in the area because we were such a small group that we were all more educated. Now we've had an influx of lower educated people, so that's no longer the case. So I came here from Ohio where I did my degrees, and Ohio is really a southern state. They just pretend to be northern. It was a culture shock. I mean, Milwaukee and and Eau Claire are different too as well, and Minneapolis is different as well. Racism in the South tends to be overt and it tends to be very much linked to class. So if you're a middle-class Black in the South, you can bubble yourself and you can avoid it very well. There are Black-only institutions that will protect you. There's enough of a Black community that you'll be protected and you don't have to move out of it very far to find the whites who are accepting. We don't have the hard scape racism you have here. When I grew up on 8th Street, there was a fence down the middle of it to keep the black and white kids from playing with each other. And we just climbed the fence. Where I grew up, there were more connections between black and white because of the geography. We were too close to each other. And elite whites and middle class whites, there's still an etiquette. I mean, it wasn't until I moved north that a white person actually came in my house but it was easier to know who to avoid. It was also easier to understand why things were happening to you. Racism in Milwaukee and in Eau Claire tends to be covert. And that messes with your mental health. Is this person messing with me because they're a jerk? Or is this person a racist? Are they an equal opportunity jerk? Are they having a bad hair day? You know, they'll be fine the next day. Or are they a racist? Are they someone I have to keep an eye on? It's taxing. It's it's taxing on your energy. And at the same time, class is not acknowledged here in the same way. I had a woman I was trying to help with a service issue. I was trying to direct her to the right services. Call me a nice white lady. Because of the way I speak, because I don't fit the stereotypes, she did not have a framework to think of a middle-class black. So she just slotted me as white. I have had some people at church think I must be Indian or I must be foreign-born because, again, they don't have a framework because there's so few blacks up here. So on one hand, it's, it is more stressful because st- you know I'm going to stick out here in a way that I won't stick out in Milwaukee. But I also worry more about those kinds of interactions. It, it makes you doubt yourself. It gives you a good case of imposter syndrome. It's easier for a racist to get away with something covert if there's only one black in the room. Once there's two or three and we're looking at them and going, you know, that's really not cool. It's a lot easier to operate. And we're beginning to get to the point where there are two in the room. So someone saying you're overreacting is going to get other blacks and whites saying, no, they're not overreacting. What you said really was inappropriate. So that makes it a little easier to operate. The discrimination in Milwaukee is is so much based on that segregation, and they're so anxious about each other. And you have whites there who move into the suburbs to get away from Blacks, and because they can do that, nothing ever forces them to engage their anxiety. You have whites here who can, they're never going to meet a Black person unless they are looking to. So again, their anxiety is not assuaged. But you have other whites who have biracial children in the community. The majority of the Blacks up here are biracial. And I think because of that, we get... a. We get a really interesting experience up here where you have these women who have black children and now they're being forced to look at what discrimination looks like from the inside. You have these families who have black children within them and now the cousins and the uncles and the aunts are seeing these issues from the inside and they're going, I never knew. So it really changes their perspective. So on one hand, I feel my race less here than when I'm in Louisiana. In Louisiana, I feel very much black because the the stereotyped assumptions are very much there, but there's also that assumption, that expectation, that as a middle-class black who's linked to certain families, I will only be in certain areas and I will only work with certain people. I left Louisiana to get away from that. In Milwaukee, I very much feel my race, and I feel very much nervous about the police there and about being discriminated against there and getting bad service there. Here, I'm more worried about the fact my daughter has very few role models. She said to me the other day, Mom, I'm not the beauty standard here. And I said, but you are beautiful, but I'm not the beauty standard here. So raising children in a hyper-white environment makes you wonder if you're doing something wrong.
1: As far as I can tell, Suleika, you're doing so very much right I want to talk to you some more, and actually, before we leave, and I think we'll have to include this in a bonus excerpt on the NordenSpiritradio.org website, I would like you to play some music, uh, and, and people won't be able to hear that in the broadcast, but if they come to Spirit, org, look for my interview with Sleeka Ducksworth lawton and you'll find a song that she's going to perform for us if we've got enough time. Salika is a professor at University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire. She's on the executive board of Wisconsin's ACLU. Amongst her writings, uh, there's a chapter in a book called Black Veterans Politics and Civil Rights in 20th Century America. Her chapter, Have Gun, Will Travel, is really one that you want to check out. And there's other books like The Pipeline that she's written that Follow the links on northernspiritradio.org, and find all the good things that Salika Duxworth-Lawton is doing for Eau Claire, for Wisconsin, for the United States, and I think for all of us around the world. Thank you, Salika, so much for joining me for Spirit in Action.
0: Thank you for having me here.
1: I we'll just feel the echo.